0: Turn with me this morning to uh, an Old Testament passage here in Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30. We're going to read the first 10 verses here of this chapter. Now, I know these chairs are comfy and the building is spacious, but don't go to sleep on me, right? That's not the purpose of having the, we could have got hard chairs, but we didn't. Uh, now I'm going to see what happens, and we're going to see, but no, enjoy the chairs for sure, um, they're a blessing from God, and, uh, and we, we thank the Lord for it. Um, Deuteronomy is one of the most powerful books in the Bible. It is one of the classics that we call in the Old Testament. It's one of the books that you really can't not read. It must be read. If you're going to understand anything that's going on, you've got to understand Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy, the term actually means second law, second covenant. So what God has done, you remember this, in Exodus He makes a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, right? Well, they fail God when they do not enter the land, remember? They leave Sinai, just like we left Gooch's place, uh, and they went to a new place. And they went to the borders of the Jordan, And they sent out twelve spies. Ten of them came back and said, we can't take the land. We're but grasshoppers among these, these guys. They're giants. And two of them said, we can take it with the Lord's help. Well, they decided not to take it. And in disobedience, God made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Until that entire generation of people that had rejected God, rejected His promise, not put their faith in they all died. Now, fast forward, Moses is still alive. Caleb is still alive. Joshua is still alive. That was the two spies. And of course, Moses, the leader. They're all still alive. But everybody else that rejected God during that time died in the wilderness. Now their sons and daughters have grown up. And it's a new generation. All right. Now, Moses is 120 years old. So Deuteronomy is really a message from a 120 year old leader of the people. He's been leading them for 40 years now. He is not allowed to go into uh, the promised land because he sinned against God by tapping, by striking a rock twice. And the rock is only struck once for our salvation. And so God had to teach him a lesson and that was fine. He went up on the mountain after Deuteronomy and he dies. And Joshua takes over. And, and actually, on our, in, in chapter uh, 31, this is where Joshua actually does succeed Moses. So this is some of the last words of Moses, this towering figure, this figure who gives to us through the revelation of God at the burning bush, the name Yahweh, also gives to us monotheism, which has never been heard of in the world until the God of Israel descends upon Moses and tells him, I'm the only one, buddy. Now, hear these words, some of the last words he tells this new generation, now as they're on the plains of Moab, about to go into the land. Here's what he tells them. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you. In other words, the choice of the blessing, choose life, blessing, choose sin and death. Curse will come upon you which I've said before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you and He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of, the hev- of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, and you may possess it. And He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that... You will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all His commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as He took delight in your fathers, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God, to keep His commandments and His statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the words that you spoke through Moses here so many years ago. May you make it relevant and real to us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What would make you happy? What is happiness? What would you say if you had to briefly describe a time in which you were happy? These are three questions that I ask about a hundred students of mine at, uh, at Calhoun to take a voluntary survey uh, to describe those, those three things. What would make you happy? What really would make you happy? And you know, I trust me, I had a variation of things. Pizza would make me happy. you know, um, A lifetime supply of chick-fil-a would make me happy. Um, there was a variety of answers. Uh, what is happiness? And many people uh, defined happiness in very subjective, emotionally driven, temporary types of definitions. Not something lasting. But as I said last week, more like the idea of trying to get full. Most people have an idea of happiness as if it's something that is just temporary. Something that is not going to remain. Something that really can't be reached. Really can't be kept. And so their answers revealed a few things to me that I want to connect this morning to what Moses is saying. One of them is this. Not one person... In all hundred and something of those uh, surveys, not one person said, I make me happy. There wasn't one. There were some selfish answers, it seemed to be. But not one of them thought to themselves that they make themselves happy. There's a reason for that God has not created us in such a way that we are enough. That we, I, in myself, am complete. This is not the way He's designed us. You remember, when He creates Adam, which in the Hebrew is mankind, uh, He says, it is not good that He is alone. That He does not have a companion, a helper. And so He, out of His rib, creates woman. And says, this is a helper that's right for man. None of the animals would work, remember? They passed before Him, He named them, none of them were companions. Like Eve, who is the mother of all living. We were made in His image, after His likeness. We were made with eternity in our hearts. This is what Ecclesiastes tells us. He placed eternity in us. This is why even when people pass from this life to the next, we still feel like they're around. We have eternity in our hearts. We don't just see what's right before us, but we can see beyond that. We can see behind that. This is what gives us the capability of reason. We're the only animal in the world that reasons. And the philosophers have noted this throughout time. All the way back from Heraclitus to Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, the great Greek philosophers, all the way into the Roman ones, all the way into the modern ones. That's the one thing that defines us from just simply being purely animal. Instead of instinctually acting upon you as an animal, no, we can say to ourselves, stop. No. We can assess whether our activities are good. Or bad, we feel sorry when we 've done things to hurt other people. This has to be suppressed. If you study people who are psychotic, they go through a process of suppressing this, or them, them themselves being abused at some point it 's you know i 've never seen when i 've watched these uh, shows where You have the cheetah just tearing it up to get after the wildebeest. You know, him stopping the wildebeest by the neck and saying, you know, sorry, I know you have kids at home, but I got to eat, man. (laughs) There seems to be no sorrow in being animal. And it shouldn't be. They're instinctually programmed. And they can respond. They can make decisions. They can be happy and sad. But they can't reason. They don't respond like we do. If they could, then they'd be having schools. They would be having services today. Having conventions. I've never seen a squirrel convention. (laughs) I've seen them scurrying about, but never a squirrel convention where they're saying, you know what? We've got a big winter coming. We really need to prepare for this, guys. No, no, no. We're the only ones who meet in buildings and talk about life, talk about the future, talk about the past. This is something He's placed within us. He made us like that to reason, to have will, to have purpose, to have vision, to have dreams. He made us to be holy and in love with Him. Both H-O-L-Y, holy love, but also W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy in love with it. Did you not... Did you see how many times it was repeated here in chapter 30? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. This term, happy, uh, as I mentioned before, our English term for happy comes from hap, which is chance. And, you know, typically when we get happy, it, it's by chance. You know, all of a sudden I tell you, hey, I've got $100 for you. Huh? It's like on Monopoly. You're like, yes, it makes me happy. I'm in the lead. At least I try to be in the lead on Monopoly. Uh, I got kicked out last time, so I lost all my money. Well, not last time. Actually, I won. Jessica can invite me up on that. The time before that is when I lost. Uh, I remember the times I lost. But No, our term for happy isn't enough in the English. If you go to the Hebrew and the Greek, there are some other terms that are similar to happy, but they don't really cheapen Happiness. Now, what I want to do is, is, so again, we're back at defining. And I hate to do this, but you remember the first day of this, or the first Sunday of this uh, sermon series on the pursuit of happiness, I mentioned that we're really going to have to do some redefining. What's happened to this word happy, along with other words, um, is what C.S. Lewis calls verbicide. It's been killed. Uh, and... One of the things that the Bible is going to define happiness as is ethical prosperity, moral goodness, righteousness, being just, being faithful. Now, That may not normally be the way you would define something good. Uh, I mean, as I mentioned to the kids, you know, um, food can be good. Uh, even God says in the beginning, after He creates the world, He says, this is good. You know, and again, we had some good etouffee last night. Well, does that mean that there's a rogue etouffee that ran off with like a darker rue? No. Or maybe there's, there's a celery-based etouffee that, that is bad, sinful. It's being bad and the others are being good. That's not what, We're not talking about an, a moral aspect to good food but rather, notice this, a good etouffee, just like a good pizza, like we were talking about with the kids, is one that lines up to tasting like what we think etouffee should taste like what it was designed to taste like, it's the same concept when you, when you accidentally pick up someone else's drink maybe at dinner, and you thought it was water and you get the shock of Sprite you ever had that happen? It it, it wasn't what we expected because that's not the way water tastes. It doesn't taste like carbonated, you know, sugary Sprite. You know what? God has designed us a certain way. And when we live in relationship to that way, to that ideal, then we are good. Then we taste right, so to speak. Then we act right. You know what? He's placed that within us. This is something that He has designed. He's the designer, not me. C.S. Lewis is very helpful here. He says, just like, again, a keyboard or a piano. Which keys are bad? Which keys are good? It's only the composer who tells you when to play the key. And if you play it outside of the composition, it's bad. Inside of it, it's good. But all the keys, in themselves... Are not bad. Just as everything in our world that we see, including our very bodies, our minds, our sexuality, our relationships, this is all good. God says it's good, but it must be played right. When it's played out of order, this is where things go awry. It's interesting that in the Cimmerillion, which is a follow-up to Lord of the Rings story about creation... God plays, sings the world into existence. Same thing happens, by the way, in Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan sings the world into existence. But there comes another voice that is off tune, the enemy, the evil one. And he sings, but you know what ends up happening is, is he sings over him and actually incorporates the bad singing into the good. This is what God has done. This is what he's done for And Tolkien and both Lewis are trying to capture this in a fictional way. But it should be a reality for us. They're pointing to something that's a reality. And that is, he has made us for eternity. He has made us to be happy. Not just an emotional blip here and there. But instead, not anything based on subjectiveness. But something based on the way we actually live. Uh, the founding fathers put in that phrase. You remember? The pursuit of happiness. They don't mean a subjective whatever you want. If, if, if you know running stop signs makes you happy, then you have the right to do that. That is a right. No, no, no. If you go back and look up the term, the way they would have used it, look at, look at Madison's usage of that term, you'll see that it has a moral Component to it, even in our founding documents. So, the trouble is, happiness is normally conceived as subjective something, something momentary. But instead, it should be a totality of life. It should be a goal that we all want. We all want to be happy. You don't pursue it by subjective, temporary things. This is not the way you, you pursue happiness. Aristotle is actually helpful here. And I'm not a philosopher. I right? had to do a lot of work to dig this up. And I have another guy who's a friend of mine from seminary. John Spano that, that will correct me if needed. Because uh, he does. He has PhD in, in philosophy and teaches philosophy. Aristotle envisioned this term happiness. Even way back then. You're talking about 400 B.C. Okay, this is before Jesus. Um, He said it encompasses the totality of life. It's not a few hours of a pleasurable sensation or sensuality. But instead, it's more like the ultimate value of life. He said it is our ultimate goal in life is to be happy. Now, you would normally think, do what you want, right? That's what makes me happy, right? But let me ask you something. When you do what you want, does that make you happy? Say you say to your, your friend, you're like, man, I tell you, if they, if they ever say something about that again, I'm going to just really give it to them. Well, that's, that's what you want to do, right? Well, when you do that, does that make you happy? Does that fix the problem? When you splurge, you say to yourself, you know what, I, I, I'm just going to lie on the couch here and watch TV all day. Does that make you happy? When you're by yourself doing what you want to do, using people or maybe even abusing people, does that make you happy? I'm asking, does it make you happy? No, it doesn't make you happy. You feel terrible. When we get what we want, we don't want what we get. It's the truth. You want something that you've not been able to purchase before, you finally get it and it becomes ho-hum within six months. They've actually done studies. And it takes about anywhere from three to six months to get tired of anything. A new car, a new house. You're just back to the grind. And then it's on to the next thing. On to the, and this is a virus in our world, isn't it? Keeping up with the Joneses. <laughs> I was building my snowman uh, in the uh, snowpocalypse recently. And, um, and my neighbor came over and uh, his last name is Jones. And, uh, and so he said, Hey, Marshall, you're supposed to be keeping up with the Joneses, not getting ahead of us, man. <laughs> well, It is what it is, bro. And then, of course, my brother one-upped me, uh, and, and many of you saw that on Facebook, but that's all right. That's the way it works. It's on to the next thing, isn't it? Nothing that's material like that, nothing that's just a desire of ourselves, that is not enough. When you get that, that's not enough. It's on to the next thing. If what we wanted and God made us happy, we wouldn't need God. If cars made us happy, we wouldn't need God. I wouldn't need my wife. I wouldn't need my kids. I wouldn't need you as a church. If my house made me happy. If my electronics made me happy. If my phone made me happy. None of that stuff can make you happy. That's the reality. There are people who've had it all. And guess what they do? They don't care. It's on to the next thing. Oh, somebody's got a billion more than me. Or they end their life out of despair. Because once you have everything you want, you realize what you want is too little. Our desires, naturally... Our wants, naturally, are not enough to satisfy us. He has put eternity in our hearts. And unless we feed on something eternal, we'll never be happy. Amen. We must feed on Him. We must drink Him in. This is the only thing that will satisfy our soul. Our heart, our hearts are restless. St. Augustine says. Until they rest in thee. What we must learn. And a great time to learn it is during Lent. When, we ha- when we're having to give up some things. Replace some things. Cut off certain things in our life. In order to draw closer to him. We learn that we don't need those things. That those things actually don't. Make us happy. Most of those things are more like a parasite that draws the life out of us rather than into us. This is why we retreat to the mountains. We want to get away from our technology because it sucks us dry. We need something eternal. We need God. We need His Word. We need prayer. We need the church. It's His body in the world. These things will satisfy us. The Word matters. Words matter. And it's sort of a play on words. Words matter because they become material. If somebody tells you you're dumb enough, well, dumb enough, you'll start thinking you're dumb. It's a form of abuse. But if somebody tells you that you're beautiful, if someone tells you that you're smart, that you're wise, that you're good at your job, these things can create in us something material. This is why our words matter. Words matter. These words matter. Jesus. I talked about this last week. I'm not going to rehearse the whole thing, but here's some terms that actually materialize in my life. They matter. Jesus. Jessica. Jackson. Baylor. Bow. Ty. Mom, dad. These are essential words to me. Justin, Cassie, Tina, my family, Mimo, my mom, Papa Russum. These are words that may not mean anything to you, but they materialize in me. And when I'm around those people, guess what? I'm being fed because they're feeding me something eternal. They see something in me that I can't see always in myself. People like, who are my friends? Adam, Robert, Chris, John, Scott. You don't know them? I do. They mean something. We have a history together. You have these people in your life. Do you ever let them know that? They matter? They care? That you care? That you love them? This must be something that we work at. This is what, we're, this is what Jesus does to us. Doesn't He say that when He comes back, He's going to even have a new name written on His leg? Which is awesome. Awesome. I guess he's going to have some pants on as embroidered. And he's going to give you a new name. A new name. You. Personalized a new name. It's pretty odd. People like you in this room. Your names matter to me. It matters what you say. It matters that you pray. For me, for one another, it matters. Words matter because words point to realities, point to people. God created the world through words; it materialized. Now, again, we're not getting into something that, that says, "You know what? Audi S eight, and that's going to be out there in the parking lot for me." No, you know, big four x four, jacked up on whip. No, you know, that we're not talking about that. I'm talking about encouraging one another in the spirit. With your words. We're called to do that. We need that, don't we? A a, a timely word spoken into the soul can lead you on through dark times. We're called to be good. We can be good. say, hold up now, hold up. And we always like to make room for all of our weaknesses, all of our our sins, all of our excuses. You know what matters is a holy heart, a perfect love. It's not about the performance. Don't focus on the performance, instead, focus on the relationship. Love God with all of your heart. Out of a pure heart, a single eye, the Bible says. My love for Jessica, my family, my friends, my children. By performance standards, it's not perfect. I'm not able to be there all the time. I can't make it to certain things. I can't always think up a timely word or a kind word. But you know what? It's the heart of the matter that is important. It's what I'm striving for. If we give up, then we fail. If you fail, fail forward. Fall forward into His grace. Don't ever lie down and remain. The worst thing you can do as a Christian is give up. The race is to be run, it's a long race. You may have started sprinting. Trust me, I've done this before. You may have started sprinting. Within that first mile, you're pooped, you're done with, you're exhausted. This is a long endurance race. Set your eye on the goal and start running toward that goal. Do not give up. The worst thing we can do is to stop. It's why we need each other. It's why it's, when you're running with another person, you can actually go further. You can do more because of the encouragement of that other person. That's why the military runs together. They do everything together. They sleep together, eat together. It's because of community. Community. We can go further as a team, not as individuals. We were never made for ourselves. Remember the the surveys I gave out? No one said, being by myself, you know, and my accomplishments make me happy. We need each other. We were made for each other. One of the things that uh, distinguished Methodism. from from other denominations in, in Protestantism was the way they died. Sort of a weird thing, isn't it? But there was a physician that told Charles Wesley, most people die for fear of dying, but I've never met with such people as yours. They are none of them afraid of death, but calm and patient and resigned to the last. In the ancient world, people really looked at the way you died. In other words, when you read the vitas of the philosophers, more emphasis is placed on how they died than even their earthly lives sometimes. Because if you believe something all your life, and then rescind that at the end of your life, you know, say you're an atheist and you get scared at the end, and start believing in God. I mean, that's not really going to do good for your book sales. Right? That's not going to do good for your philosophy. Right? Not if when it really comes down to brass tacks. You know, you're dead. You're gone. See you later. When it comes down to that, you better watch what people do. And so in the ancient world, people really watched. People really, even in the gospels. You ever notice how much. You know, take John for instance. You get 12 chapters of Jesus' birth through His ministry, 33 years of stuff. When it comes down to chapter 13, you're already in the last week of His life. That'll go to 21. 13 to 21. That large of a section given to His death. Why? Because in the ancient world, it mattered how you died. Now, why do I say that? It's because we're called to holy dying. It's not just in our Methodist roots. Maybe you know of the 21, again, Coptic Christians that died, were beheaded at the hands of Issus. They died, we are told, praying and whispering and shouting the name of Jesus. Prayers to God. As their executioner said, these are people of the cross. Which represents our dying The Scripture says it's appointed to man once to die and then the judgment. In other words, heaven or hell. Dying is important. Now you say, I don't want to be morbid. I don't either. I don't like to be morbid. But you know what? If we're going to leave a legacy, if we're going to pursue happiness, true, lasting, if we're going to Pass anything down to our children that's worthwhile? And then just maybe some hints about life? If we're gonna give them something substantial to stand upon, to ground their life in, then we must think about our dying. We must think about our death. We will all die. Now, in our world, we have shrouded death, covered it up, hid it, put it away in the hospital rooms, we've put legal stuff in place rarely today do people see people die. Rarely. I mean, family members. Normally, even at the moment of death, they're whisked away for other people to work upon. Okay, that's the world we're living in. That's not how the ancient world, that's not even how the modern world has seen. When you use, I mean, today, Jessica, without modern medicine, she would not be with us. Used to, if you had a, you know, appendicitis, it was, let's go home. Let's tell everybody bye-bye. This is it. My dad would not be with us. Diperticulitis would have taken him. Alright? It matters how you die. We're going to end it. It's going to end sometime. Used to, we would watch it happen. People would say very important things on their deathbed. Today, yes. we don't get that chance. Many times, we don't get that chance. Right or wrong, it's our situation. I'm just saying to you, you must think about this. You must live with the end in mind. Isn't this what we say about goals anyway? About running a business? About operating at work? You don't start a project unless you know the end. We don't start the project of Christianity, our relationship with Jesus, without understanding the end. You must live with the end in mind. To say that you are, Aristotle said this, to say that you're happy now, is sort of like saying good game at halftime. Game's not over. How do you know if you are happy? Again, we're thinking happy here, moral, grounded in morality, how you actually live your life. Not just some whim feeling, not just some kind of you know, emotional feeling, but instead grounded in good living. Good, again, being a technical term there. Are you living that kind of life? Because if you are, you're living the good life, even though it's not been realized yet, even though it's not over. He, Aristotle said this, and I think it's helpful. I think Jesus would agree with him. And that is, you can't really know if you're happy until the end of your life. Amen. That will tell the final story. Because you know what? Even when we mess up, the game's not over, people. You, you say you fumble the ball. The game's not over. It's still time to get back up, get on the field and finish the game. The time that God has given to you is spinning down, just like in a football game. Don't waste it. Wesley's helpful here. He says, "You have no time to lose. See that you redeem every moment that remains. Remove everything out of the way, be it ever so small. That might anyways obstruct your lowliness and meekness, your seriousness of spirit, your single intention to glorify God in all your thoughts, words, and actions. Seize the moment! That's what we're called to do. Not be distracted by the things of this world. It's fine to enjoy sports. It's fine to go mountain biking and running and playing video. I I love all that stuff. And I do it. There's a time to play, but there's also a time to work. There's a time to be funny and there's a time to be serious. Trust me, when you have that time to be serious, it makes the things more funny. But if you ignore them, you're just chuckling in a shell. You don't really mean it. You don't really have groundedness in your life. You're not on the foundation, Jesus Christ. When we took Jackson to school, when he was uh, we homeschooled him in uh, kindergarten, took him for the first grade. It was a little, you know, small school near our house, but even so, it was tough. You know, to watch your oldest. Go into this building, you know, by himself. And, and, you know, he turned around and looked at us right before he went in. You know, he turned around and looked at us. I thought about that. I've done that before, you know. I remember going into the bed I'm like, You sure you want me to go in here? You know, I don't know about this. You kind of look back for maybe reaffirmation. To remember that your parents, maybe to remember that a bunch of people have walked through these same doors and had to do this same thing. Sometimes we're called to go places that we don't necessarily want to go. But everybody goes through the doors of death. It's time to look back at Jesus Christ. At the Father who has given us this life. Look back to remember how good He has been to bring you to this point this morning as the clock is still ticking. Look back in reaffirmation. Be reaffirmed this morning that He is for you. That when you walk through those doors, He's going to be with you. He's already walked through them, He's already forged the path. He is the pioneer. Not us. It's okay to go, it's okay to move forward in a new venture in your life, a new job, a new relationship with His blessing. Being good. Being happy, that's what happiness is. Happiness is being holy. What religion do I preach? The religion of love. The law of kindness brought to light by the gospel. What is this good for? It's to make all who receive it enjoy God and themselves to make them like God, lovers of all, contented in their lives and crying out at their death in calm assurance. O grave, where is your victory? Thanks be unto God who gives me the victory through my Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.